So as I mentioned last week, we'll be in Genesis chapter 3 for our sermons of Advent. And that might seem on the surface like a strange place to be to celebrate the birth of Jesus, as most churches are doing these days in the weeks leading up to and then the Sunday of Christmas. But one of the interesting things that Adam and I found out was as we were thinking through songs to sing for this month, we looked through Christmas carols and we noticed how many of them, or at least a handful of them, have Genesis 3 themes that the birth of Jesus has come to reverse the curse or to take away what happened in Genesis 3, like language that we saw last week and as we sang again this morning, that we can have great joy in the birth of Jesus because there are blessings flowing far as the curse of Genesis 3 is found. But how about another song that we're about to sing in just a moment? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Now that may not seem to you like a direct connection to Genesis 3, but my hope is that after this morning's message, you will see that song is all about Genesis chapter 3. O come, O come, Emmanuel, come, God be with us, because we are not with God, and He and us are not close anymore. So come, that's the cry of this song. Save and rescue the captive Israel who mourns in lonely exile. And that's the theme I want you to be thinking about this morning. That until the Son of God appears as Emmanuel, God with us, all of humanity, Israel in particular, but all of humanity has been in a state of exile. So with that, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3 on page 2 of our black Bibles. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to bounce around to a few different verses and consider this theme of exile and the presence of God. We're going to start first in verse 8. So I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 1, and then stop at verse 8, and we're going to focus in on that verse for the first point. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God 
walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. I have three points that I want to make in my remarks this morning. Point number one, looking at verse eight, God wants to walk with us, with mankind. God wants to walk with us. The Bible begins and ends with God wanting to dwell with man. It begins and ends with God wanting to be with us, if you want to put it simply. This phrase, walk with man in the garden, he's walking in the garden, is a familiar phrase throughout the first five books of the Bible. And if you've not been with us throughout this series in Genesis, we're not just looking at Genesis by itself. We're seeing how Genesis is introducing to us a lot of things about the world and mankind, man, woman, marriage, etc. But it's also more specifically introducing to us the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And if you ever read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, one of the things you're going to need to do is not get too quick to insert in your ideas. Because there's not a lot of detailed commentary or explanation. It's just a matter-of-fact story. So how do we understand how to interpret or think about some of these stories and phrases and words? I think the best way for us to do that is to look at these first five books that are a collection together and use the information in the rest of these five books to inform the details of this story. So, for example, in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 and following, I'm going to read you this passage. If you want to turn to another passage right now as I'm reading this one, Deuteronomy 23, we're going to turn there in just a second. But listen to Leviticus 26, verse 11, one of the five books of Moses. It says that God saved the Israelites from Egypt because he wanted to walk with them. Here's, here's how it reads. I will make my dwelling, and that's the literal word, my tabernacle. So the tabernacle tent in the camp. I'm going to make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you. There's our phrase. I will walk, walk among you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I, the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, so that you will not be slaves anymore. I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. I saved you from the hand of Pharaoh. Why? So that you will no longer be bent over, beat as slaves, but so you can stand up and I can walk with you. See the phrase? God walking, dwelling, being with his people. Deuteronomy 23 is that next passage that I was referring to. If you look in these black Bibles, Deuteronomy 23 can be found on page 165. Now this is a strange passage, but it's going to make sense as we read through the rest of this service. But essentially, this passage is giving instructions about how to use the restroom. So again, I'm not trying to be vulgar or strange or just attention-grabbing. This is going to make sense as we go through. But look at verse 12, 13, and 14 of Deuteronomy 23. You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it. And you shall have a trowel with your tools. 
And when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. Because the Lord your God walks, there's our phrase again, the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give you up to your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. It's a strange text on the surface. Like, okay, so we now know why there's an outhouse. But notice the reasoning here. Because the Lord God walks in your midst, Your camp must be holy, and you must not be indecent in front of him. So the phrase walking in the garden is a phrase that is familiar to the first five books of the Bible, and it's referring to God dwelling in the tabernacle or in the camp, just being in their midst in the camp of Israel. So I think we can safely say that the Bible begins with God and man dwelling, being together, walking together. And God therefore wants to walk with us because how does the Bible end? The last two chapters give us this beautiful vision of a return to the garden. It's very garden-like. There's rivers going through just like in the garden. There's gold everywhere just like the garden. There's trees of life just like in the garden. But this garden is very city garden-like It's a combination of images and metaphors in Revelation 21 where you have a city-like garden all wrapped up because the city of Jerusalem was God's dwelling place with man. And the garden was God's dwelling place with man. And the end of the Bible, the good news for all of us, is that God wants to dwell with man. And so this is how the scripture reads in Revelation 21. Behold. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be there any mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. It's a simple point. It's probably not a new one for most of us. But the Bible begins and ends with God walking, dwelling and wanting to be with you. The original design of the Bible, his final goal is this, dwelling with man. I wonder if any of you have thought, what does that mean though? Isn't God's presence everywhere? Aren't we always dwelling with God at all times? Any place we go, whether we're using the restroom or we're not, I mean, he's there, isn't he? Yes. The Bible does teach that God is everywhere. So as we consider this morning this idea of the presence of God, we want to affirm and get out of the way, at least in our minds, the teaching and the idea of the omnipresence of God, that he's everywhere. We can't hide from God. That's what makes verse 8 of chapter 3, that they put fig leaves on themselves and they hid from God in the trees. So humorous almost laughable. Hide from God? Some of you might know the familiar psalm of King David. Oh Lord, you have searched me, you have known me, you know when I sit and when I rise, when I 
When I think, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my paths, my lying down. You're acquainted with all of my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. O Lord, you knew it all together. You hemmed me behind me and before me. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. Where can we go and not be in the presence of God? Answer, nowhere. You can't ascend to the heavens, he's there. You can't go down in the depths of the grave, he's there. So that's what the Bible teaches, that God is everywhere. But that is not the main focus of the Bible when it's teaching the presence of God. That's a true teaching. That's not the focus of Genesis 3, nor the primary focus of this idea of God's presence. So some of you might have this language if you're around church. We want to be in God's presence together. And that's where this omnipresence like, well, you always are. No, we mean something more than just the regular general presence of God. And the Bible means something more. It means a near presence, a closeness. So to illustrate this, I want you all to think about being around famous people. Have you ever been to a concert where there's a famous person? Or have you ever been in Washington, D.C., like I was for three years, and the president would drive by, and so I was near, I was in the present of whoever the president was. Now, if you've ever been in those settings, it's true that you're in that person's general presence. You're at the concert, you're sitting there, and you were there. You and that person, there. And in that sense, illustratively, I want you to think about the general presence of God. Like, yeah, you're there, and God's there, and you're there, and you guys are in the same space. But have you ever been to a concert and had backstage passes? And then met the famous person and shook their hand and talked with them and sat down with them and hung out for a while. See, that's a very different kind of presence, isn't it? That's a very different access to this famous person that you got through the security and I'm in front of them, ah, you know, how people act when they get around famous people that they admire and adore. Well, times that by a million. We get to be near the near presence of God. Backstage passes. That's what the whole Bible is trying to tell us. I'm inviting you not to just be in my general presence. I'm inviting you backstage to walk with me. That's what God wants. God wants to walk with you, talk with you, have a personal relationship with you. Do you see the difference? The question I have for all of us then, do you want to have that kind of relationship with God? Or do you just prefer to know him from afar? General presence. Is it safe to describe your relationship with God as close and personal? Even friends. Father. These are the language that God uses throughout Scripture to talk about our relationship with Him. Our second point. If God wants to walk with us, what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is that we, like Adam and Eve, we run and hide from God in our sin. He's the pursuer. All through the scriptures, he wants to be with us. 
but we are running. We don't want to walk. We don't want to talk. We want to hide. This is certainly what Adam and Eve did, but I want us to ask the question, why? Why did they hide from God? Look back at verse 8 again. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The first thing I want to make mention of is that the phrase, heard the sound of the Lord, is literally the voice of the Lord. And again, if we use our same logic we used earlier and throughout this series, where do we see this phrase elsewhere in the five books of Moses? The voice of the Lord. And you see it a lot. It's normally translated the voice of the Lord. The question that translators and commentators are wrestling with is, is it that they heard the sound of the Lord God literally walking and that there was a theophany, which means a man-like presence, an angelic-like being that's walking, and they heard him, and so that's what they heard was the sound, or is the walking more of this metaphor that we've seen elsewhere in the Pentateuch, that this walking is to talk about his being in their midst, and so the God who made everything is in their midst, and what they heard was the voice of the Lord. And that's where some of the trouble is with understanding how to read this. One possible scenario is that this voice of the Lord should be an introduction to the voice of the Lord that we see in Ezekiel, or not Ezekiel, Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. And if you know those scriptures off the top of your head, you'll know, oh, that's the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20. Deuteronomy 5, the giving of the Ten Commandments. But do you know the scene of the Ten Commandments? What happened before and after the Ten Commandments were given? Listen to Exodus 20, right after the Ten Commandments were given. When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid. They trembled. They stood far off, and then they said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us. We will listen to you, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people then stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. All surrounding the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai is thunder and lightning and clouds of darkness. It is a scene to be in awe of. And notice, throughout this scene, it is the voice of God, it is the speaking of God that has them trembling. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. I was afraid. I heard the voice of God, and I was afraid because I was naked. 
There's potentially a parallel. There's potentially an introduction to the Mount Sinai giving of the law. This voice of the Lord that comes down with terror. Or it could be a very pleasant scene where the Lord is just strolling as it's the cool breeze of the day. But if you see in these black Bibles in front of you, there's actually a footnote next to cool. And it says down there that the Hebrew word is ruach. It means wind or spirit. So let's read this very Hebrew literally. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the wind of the day. And that's again why there's this discussion. What's going on in this scene? Is this a scene of terror, like the whirlwind that comes with God's voice? And they got scared. Or are they just so ashamed of their nakedness that they know that it's time for our evening stroll with God? And here he comes. And they're humiliated. I don't know if it makes a difference, but I wanted to just point out that it's possible for us to see that this is the terroring voice of God that we see later on in the books of Moses. Either way we go, verse 10 makes it clear. They hid because they were afraid because they were naked. Now, what does this naked idea have to do with anything, and why is it so prevalent? Have you ever thought about this? This word naked and this idea of being naked is all through these first couple chapters of the Bible. One of the questions I've asked is, why is it that in verse 25 it seems like man and wife can be naked in the presence of God in the garden and feel no shame? It's fine. But didn't we just read in Deuteronomy chapter 23 that you should not be indecent in front of the Lord? Hmm. What's going on there? All throughout this chapter, in chapter 3, you see the word naked in verse 7 when they see that the first thing that happens when they sin and eat the fruit from the tree Not that they fall over dead. That's what you're expecting as you read the story. You get to chapter 2. You see that you're going to surely die the day you eat of it. And you're expecting they eat it. Boom. Dead. But instead, they realize they're naked. What? So naked has this jarring introduction right after being told that they were naked and unashamed. And then we're told what we've already seen in verse 10, that they're hiding because of their nakedness. God asks, why do you think that you're naked? Oh, did you eat of that fruit from the tree I told you not to eat? And then you go to the end of the chapter and you see that God clothes their nakedness in verse 21. One of the things I did not realize until going into its original language was that verse 25 uses a word for naked that's different from all of chapter 3's uses of naked. So that was one little, hmm. Now I have two possible reasons why it's different. One is that in verse 25, it says that the man and his wife were both naked. And then it says in verse 1 of chapter 3 that the serpent was more crafty. And the word naked and crafty are like homonyms. They sound almost identical to one another. 
So a lot of commentators pick that up and say, there's a play on words here. There's a link between 25 and verse 1 of chapter 3. So maybe that's just all he's trying to do is a play on words. And there's lots of play on words through chapters 1 through 3. So that could just be it. There's no other significance to it. But then when you look at the other word that's used for naked, and again, we use our interpretive tool of where is that word used throughout the Pentateuch? Guess where you find it? This morning's Old Testament scripture reading that started our service. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 15 through 24. Do you remember when I was reading that? If you do not obey the voice of God, there's our phrase again, the voice of God, then all of these curses, chapter 3 have anything to do with curses? So voice of God, curses, and then eventually The chapter in Deuteronomy 28 says that you will be exiled and sent out of the land if you do not obey the voice of God, and you'll be given over to this kind of nakedness, that word. And every other time you see this word naked that's used in chapter 3, it's only used to talk about the judgment of exile. So then I started to think, maybe there's a reason he used the different word for naked. Now, I don't think we have it in our English language. Like, if nude was, like, a word you could use as a synonym of, like, that just means you're not clothed. And then there's naked, and then that means you are humiliated. I don't know if it works that way. Maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. Like, English language, yeah, that's how those words work. But it seems like in the Hebrew, there is a word that's like, you're just unclothed. And then there's a word that says, You are exiled. You are humiliated. Now, what does exile have to do with nakedness? And then this is the other thing that you're just not going to know if you're just reading the Bible by itself. They would have known. Egyptians, when they exiled people from out of their land, you know what they did? Made them walk naked for miles and miles. Why was exile and this word for nakedness so wrapped up in one another? Because it was a well-known ancient Near East practice that when somebody was being exiled out of their land, they'd have the long, shameful, humiliating naked walk. So when they eat the fruit, they realize they're that kind of naked. Do you see the difference? They realize they're guilty. They are humiliated. So they hear the voice of God and they hide because they're naked. That kind of naked. That's why I want us to understand that this chapter is the chapter in the story of the exile. It's normally called the fall, right? Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's the four outline of the story of the whole Bible. Here's another way to spin the story of the whole Bible. There is communion and fellowship with God, and then there is exile from God's presence. Then there is Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us who rescues us from our exile so that we can be with God forever.
That, my friends, is another great way to tell the story of all of Scripture. That God sees us in our naked exile state as humans, as Israelites, as sinners. And he redeems us, restores us, rescues us. I believe this is what's going on in Genesis chapter 3, and I think this is exactly why they are covering themselves with fig leaves and why they're afraid. If you're not convinced that this chapter should be seen at least as one major theme, that it's exile, look at the very end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. Notice those phrases in verse 23 and 24. He sent him out and then he drove him out. And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Sent out, drove out. What are we going to see in chapter 4? When Cain kills his brother Abel, he is sent out even further away and further east. There's this theme throughout the Scriptures where it seems like sending people east or from the east is to be away from God's presence, to be exiled. To move westward throughout the Scriptures is to move back toward the promised land or into the presence of God. That's why I believe verses 22 through 24 make mention of the garden having eastward the cherubim protecting that entrance to the garden. So, the story here seems to be a story of exile about humanity running and hiding from God because of the humiliation of our nakedness. Question for us then, have you ever felt humiliated because of your sin and ashamed about anything you've ever done or said? Have you ever tried to put fig leaves on because you want to cover up whatever it is that you are hiding. I have a hard time thinking that any single one of us in this room would be able to answer, I'm happy to share in front of everybody right now my deepest, darkest secrets. Isn't that one of the greatest fears all of us have? The fear of other people finding out what we really are like? How many things do you do every day, little decisions, to try and protect your reputation and other people from finding out why this or that is going on? From little things to big things. We are driven by our fear, just like Adam and Eve are, and we try with lies sometimes with stretching the truth, try and cover ourselves up with fig leaves. 
The words of Jesus in John chapter 3 says that light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because of their evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest he should be exposed. One of the marks of our sin is our desire to hide our sin. But remember our first point. God wants to be near you. Why are you running from Him? Why aren't you near to Him? Because you're afraid. Because you're humiliated and you really don't know what He's going to do if you start laying bare all of these things that you've done. This is why we run from God. We don't trust the God who we fear. But I want to conclude our service in this message by pointing your attention to why you should trust Him. We have a lot of really good reasons for why we should trust the God of the Bible with our sin. Why you should not have any fear whatsoever. Did you notice what Moses said at Mount Sinai? Fear not. And Moses walked right into the cloud. The most repeated command in the Bible, by far, is do not be afraid. How many of us are struggling with fear because we don't remember what God is like and how he deals with sin? So let me remind you, point three. God wants to be with us. That was point one. He wants to walk with us. But we run from God in our sin. We hide, we run, we cover ourselves with our fig leaves. But here's the good news. God still wants to be with you. He's still pursuing you. Even though you are running, He is running harder and catches you. That's what God's like. Just look at our passage and consider what God does in verse 20 of chapter 3. It says that the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed him. I love the way that this phrase is of a tunic of skin, which means it goes all the way down. So they had a fig leaf, which is a decent-sized leaf. But it didn't cover them very well, if you could imagine. They were still pretty exposed, and more than that, they were afraid. But God, in His mercy, covers over them fully. Immediately after He finds out about their sin in chapter 3, what does God do? He first addressed the serpent, and for the next two weeks, we're going to look at these words and realize that immediately God does not pronounce judgment on the man and the woman. Instead, he pronounces a curse on the serpent, and that curse, my friends, is the reason why Christmas exists. For the next two Sundays, we're going to see that the story of Genesis 3 is the story of Christmas, that God, when he sees sin, he doesn't all of a sudden squash people. He pronounces victory over sin. This is good news, that we have a God who deals with us like this, covers over your shame and nakedness. He did it. He made the garments of skin to fully cover them. 
How often is that the case for you and me? That your shabby attempts to try and get things right never seem to pan out. But when you let God do it, how much better does he cover over your sin? How much better does he reconcile relationships? How much better does he lead and guide you when you go and follow him and walk with him? We have every reason in this chapter alone to have confidence in God. There's no reason to be afraid of him. Not when he is so merciful like this. Not when he wants to be back with us like this. But we don't just have this chapter. We read earlier in our service that Simeon was a man waiting for the consolation of Israel. And then when Jesus Christ was born, the story of Christmas was that he was a man who was very happy because the consolation of Israel has come. That's all exile language. Israel is still in exile. The people are waiting and longing for the Emmanuel to come, God with us, for the prophet's promises to come true. And when Simeon sees the baby Jesus, he says, the hope of Israel has come. We're not in exile anymore. God is with us. That's why we read Luke chapter 2 this morning. Furthermore, Did you notice at the end of chapter 3 that the garden is being guarded by a cherubim with a flaming sword? All through the Old Testament and then through the New Testament, we don't see anybody ever go back into the garden until you get to Jesus. Jesus has to go back into the garden in order for us to be back with God and man to dwell with us. And here's the interesting thing. That sword had to fall on somebody. If someone's going to go through that cherubim into the garden and open the access for all of us to come back into God's presence, Revelation 21, that beautiful verse It does not come true for you and for me unless Jesus takes the sword on himself. How did he do that? He hung naked on a cross. Is there anything more humiliating than thinking of the Son of God hanging naked? And that was not just the, oh, he didn't have clothes on naked. The whole point was to humiliate him strip his clothes off of them, and sell them. And there he hung naked outside of the camp because God wouldn't have any indecency inside of Jerusalem. Outside of the camp, he bore the reproach. That's what Hebrews 13 says. Outside of the camp, Jesus hung naked. Do you see what's happening on the cross? God with us, Emmanuel. There was a dividing curtain that divided God and man in the Holy of Holies, and as soon as he breathed his last, the curtain is torn in two. There's no more cherubim. 
There's no more flaming sword. The way has been opened. This is what the God of the Bible is like. Why would you not trust him with your sin? This is how he deals with sin. He takes it on himself. You think you're humiliated? God was humiliated in flesh when he took on flesh and died for your sin. He didn't deserve to die. These are why the words of Hebrews 10 are so pertinent and helpful for us. Since we have now confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he has opened through us through the curtain that is through his flesh. We have a great high priest over the house of God, so let us draw near. Go backstage. Get close to him. Be near him. Not just his general presence, but fall on your face before him. Get close to the God of God and the King of kings. Draw near with full assurance, with your hearts sprinkled clean from your evil conscience, and your bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. My friends, I'm, I'm convinced if you were reminded of the faithfulness of God to deal with sin like this, you would not have troubles obeying James chapter 5 and confessing sin to one another so that you would be healed. I know that there's a lot of wisdom at not confessing everything to every individual that you ever meet and every sin that you ever commit. Do you realize that as we confess to one another, we are drawing near to the presence of God, the very near presence of the body of Christ? And friends, as you hear confessions of sin, and I pray and I hope that Embassy Church would be a place, a place where it is okay for you to be not okay, a place for sinners to come and find mercy, that when people come and confess sin, is your immediate body language, ugh, or does it look like Jesus? Is your immediate tone one of helping, encouraging, I'm so thankful that you shared this sin with me? If that's not the way we receive confession of sin to one another, then this will not be the body of Christ that is embodying the way Jesus deals with sin. So I encourage all of us, Lay down all of our preconceived ideas of your reputation at the foot of the cross and realize Jesus did not care for a second about his reputation because he wanted to come after you. He wanted to be with you so badly that he would go through that. So should we not then deal with one another in a very Christ-like way? My hope and prayer is that our hearts will start to turn to him and that we will want his light to reach every area of darkness that we have kept. Do you want healing? Do you want the joy of Christmas, the true joy that Christ's light and healing can bring? And my, my encouragement to you is to find a trusted friend, hopefully one that could even be a member of this church, 
maybe not all at once, but over the course of time, share everything with people in this church with confidence that members of Embassy Church will pray for you, love you, encourage you, keep you accountable, and preach the gospel to you. We started this service by thinking about how O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is a fitting song for Genesis chapter 3. So as we move to the Lord's Supper now, we're going to sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. But there's going to be a different version that we sing it in. And I want you to hear one of the verses we're about to sing. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Our great high priest, and intercede, the sacrifice, our only plea. The judgment that we no longer fear, thy precious blood has brought us near. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel has banished every fear of hell. As we take the bread and cup, we're going to be meditating on words like these as we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you great thanks for sending.